Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to take a break from our study in Ephesians, and we're going to study the passage that we use most Sundays to celebrate, observe the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm afraid to read these two paragraphs because you're very familiar with one of them. I read the second paragraph most Sundays that we observe the Lord's Supper, but I rarely read the paragraph, I mean, as in rarely never, before or the paragraphs after because the context of the Lord's Supper here, at least in Corinth, is extremely awkward and embarrassing. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they are doing it all wrong, and Paul is rebuking them soundly. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with the less familiar paragraph in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let us attend to these words very carefully. Because we're about to take the Lord's Supper and we don't want to do it in an unworthy manner. We don't want Paul to roll over into his grave and say, you're not gathering for the better, but for the worse. This isn't even the Lord's Supper that you're taking. So I pray that we would be careful to hear and apply and we would see the glory of the crucifixion and the call of every saint as in a few minutes we will come to take the bread and the wine. Would you do that in our church body, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is very unfamiliar territory to us to hear about how the Lord's Supper was being practiced because the first century church was, of course, very, very different than the 21st century church. And so before we can even talk about how they were practicing the Lord's Supper, let's, let, let's step back and get a view of what the first century church would have looked like in Paul's day and in the city of Corinth. Now, in Paul's day, we knew that churches were very small and they met in people's houses. There were not dedicated buildings like this one for the meeting of the church. They met in people's homes. And we're just kind of guessing here. Commentators are guessing. But the church in Corinth may have been one of the 
biggest churches in the Mediterranean world, they may have had of upwards of a hundred members. That would have been like a mega church in Paul's day. That a hundred members, that's about less than half of the amount of people that are gathered here this morning. Paul could not have imagined a scene like this of born again believers to this magnitude. Small churches meeting in homes, maybe every once in a while they rented a space to gather together, but mostly it was in one person's home or spread throughout the city. And they would meet on Sunday evenings. They wouldn't have the day off of work, but after they got off work, they would gather together in someone's home, probably a wealthier member's home, because they would have had a big enough house to entertain everyone. And they would come and they would gather And they would enjoy a meal together as part of their worship service. Now this wouldn't have been a potluck meal. This would have been a meal that each person was responsible to bring. And so you went home and you packed your dinner and you brought your family. And you gathered on Sunday evening and you had a worship service. And then when you observed the supper, you actually broke the bread, as Paul said. And then you eat your brown bag picnic dinner that you had and then you would have taken the wine and the Lord's Supper would have been part of the feast you enjoyed as believers together. Now that is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. That seems like an incredible worship service to be a part of and it's beautiful in theory but something has gotten way out of whack for the church in Corinth And when Paul hears about it, he is absolutely mortified at what the church in Corinth is actually doing. When everybody gets together and pulls out their meals, it becomes immediately apparent at the dinner table who has money and who doesn't have money. Now, all of us have experienced this in some measure in the lunchroom in elementary school, right? You sit down at the lunch table, and this is a veritable parade of the haves and the have-nots. You've got the kids with the fancy zipper lunch boxes, and you've got the kids with the brown backs. You've got the kids with the squeezable yogurt, and you've got the kid with a piece of fruit, You've got the kids with the name brand bags of chips and you've got that poor kid whose mom bought in bulk and then put his chips in a sandwich bag and you just look around the lunch table and it's clear who's who and how we stack up one with another. Now those are first world problems that we experience in the U.S., But in Corinth, the church comes together, she sings together, she hears God's word together, she worships together, she eats together, but when she does, one sister in that worship service leaves stuffed and a little bit tipsy, and another woman in that worship service leaves hungry and deeply, deeply embarrassed. What a travesty. When people say, which you have said to me and I've said to you, I I wish we could just go back to the church in Acts. Right? I wish, 
I wish we could go back and be the first century church. I wish we could be the apostolic church and not the 21st century American church. They had it so much better back then. They were so much closer to what Jesus was teaching. I think when we say that to each other, we're simply forgetting how screwed up the church has always been. For 2100 years, it has been a messy, messy place. By the end of that first paragraph I just read, Paul, who is dictating this letter to Corinth, is screaming at the top of his lungs. I mean, look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What do you want me to say to you? Do you want me to commend you at this moment? Do you want me to pat you on the back for participating in the Lord's Supper? I swear to you, I'm not going to do that. I am utterly ashamed at the way you church in Corinth are practicing the Lord's Supper. This is disgusting. And then comes verse 23. Which when you kind of take it out of context, which I do each Sunday that I celebrate the Lord's Supper, it, it, it's the Lord's Supper de facto paragraph that gets read around the world in very soft, pastel, pastoral tones. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. Now I'm wondering if I should ever read that paragraph in an even voice again. Paul is seething. He is furious. He cannot believe that he started this church and they got off track so quickly. But even so, Even as upset as Paul is with this church, look at what he's doing. Look at his strategy in the paragraph that we're familiar with. Because he's taking a culture in Corinth, which is not unlike our culture, a culture of status and wealth and power and prestige, a jostling over those who have and those who don't have. And he's inviting all of us to take a closer look at Jesus through the Lord's Supper. There are all kinds of wonderful things that we could say about Jesus. The Apostle John says that I suppose the world wouldn't contain the books that we could write or say about the good things that Jesus does. But there's one thing that comes through loud and clear in the Lord's Supper, and that is this. On the cross... Jesus laid down his own status, wealth, power, prestige, and he died for sins. He was a have, and he freely gave himself up for the have-nots. I was struck again by the order of the telling here, what Jesus is saying in verse 23. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. 
Do you see those bookends on the night that he was betrayed on the one hand and, and the broken bread on the other hand, which is to represent his broken body and in between in the middle of betrayal and brokenness is thanksgiving. The betrayed, soon to be broken Jesus gives thanks. He's sitting there in the upper room. He's looking at these men who he will literally have to give his life for. And he prays as he breaks bread and says, Thank you, Father. Thank you for your will. Thank you for my lot. Thank you for what you are going to do. And by noon the next day, Jesus is pinned to the cross for the sins of the world. He was a have and he gave himself freely for the have-nots. That's a new angle and a new direction to see this supper. And I think it can inform how we think about verse 26 at the end and how you and I are about to get up And actually put into practice these things in just a few minutes when we take the supper ourselves. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now that word proclaim, it's got a lot of different facets to its meaning. It can mean something like teach. You're teaching the Lord's death. It can also, interestingly, mean evangelize. Like this is an act of proclamation to a watching world. You evangelize about the Lord's death until he comes. But according to the context, according to what he has just said to the church in Corinth, it probably has a better meaning for us to consider today. What if instead of the word proclaim, we used the word imitate? You are going to, in the Lord's Supper, imitate, put into practice, absorb, take on, and follow after precisely what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Come to this table, come eat these elements, come partake of the broken body of the have for the have-nots, and remember that you, as a believer in Christ, will turn around and do that exact same thing for each other and for the world. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to line up. We're going to shuffle to the front. We're going to take the bread. We're going to take the wine or the grape juice. And we are going to imitate the Lord's death. That is, we take these elements which remind us what Jesus has done on our behalf. But we also take these elements to remind us that in the Christian life, my body my blood will be broken and shared as well. Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after me, if you want to really do this, 
If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow hard after me, if you want to be counted in the kingdom, if you want your name written in the book of life, it is a free gift and it will cost you absolutely everything. Because you will take up your cross and you will follow me. You will say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I knew, the stuff I had, the advantages that were mine are now gone, forgotten, caught up in the glorious story of the gospel. I give these things freely. And going out from here, the Lord's Supper and you, the Lord's saints, will imitate, will practice, will embody the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Lord, there's many ways to celebrate the supper. Some are joyful, some are somber, some reflect on our sin, some reflect on our call. I pray that you would prepare our hearts so that as we come to this table, as we eat and drink, we will be reminded that you call us one to another to take up our cross, to follow you, to imitate the Lord's death until he comes. Do that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.